Welcome to the Wish Podcast. My name is Sean Kaplan. This is the fourth episode in a six-part series where we have interviewed guests who presented at the Wish Congress. And I'm Grant Bush. Today, we have the honor of chatting to Professor John Dresner. Professor Dresner serves as the editor-in-chief of the BJSM. He's the team physician for the Seattle Seahawks, O.L. Rain, and the University of Washington. He's a professor in the Department of Family Medicine and is the director of the UW Medicine Center for Sports Cardiology at the University of Washington. His accolades are numerous and his expertise is incredibly valuable. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, guys. So, John, I'm just going to dive right in and start with the basics. Can you please tell us about the field of sports cardiology? You know, sports, sports cardiology is a fairly big field, I would say, and in some ways multidisciplinary. I think when you think about an athlete and the cardiovascular care that they need, there's multiple different clinicians that can provide that care. So for me, I'm a sports and exercise medicine physician. So I would say my role is more on heart screening, making sure they don't have a pathologic condition that puts them at risk for something like sudden cardiac arrest. I might be the clinician that's evaluating symptoms, chest pain with exercise, you know, syncope, heart palpitations, et cetera, um, and ordering some tests. And then to round out the team, we usually partner and work closely with a cardiologist. And cardiologists have broad-based training. There's general cardiology, there's heart muscle specialists, you know, that, that specialize in cardiomyopathy. There's electrical heart specialists or electrophysiologists. Um, you know, sports cardiology can sort of come from any of those bins. And you just have to have an interest to really understand the specifics of what happens to someone's heart through regular exercise. So what's called athletic heart or um, the cardiac adaptations and remodeling that occurs with regular exercise to tell the difference between that and some of the pathologic conditions. And so the field of sports cardiology, I think, has really tried to put their arms around taking care of the athlete from screening, evaluation of symptoms, making sure they're safe to play. And then if they do have a heart condition, how do you manage that? And perhaps how do you even return them to play or at least give recommendations for safe physical activity levels. And so it, it's a field that I think is still in its early stages, but, but growing quite a bit. In 2015, you were a co-author of a systematic review and meta-analysis that investigated ECG screening in cardiovascular disease. The results of that study showed that the 12-lead ECG is five times more sensitive than patient history and 10 times more sensitive than physical exam. So my question is, aside from there being clinical suspicion of heart pathology, is there anything else that would lead you to perform ECG screening for a patient? This is a great point to really clarify and discuss. And the, the lead author in that paper was Kim Harmon, who's a, a close colleague of mine at the University of Washington in Seattle. She did a great job with that, with that study, really comparing history and physical, which is sort of the standard practice in the US for a sports physical versus ECG for the detection of heart conditions at risk for sudden death. The goal of sports physicals is early detection of heart conditions that put an athlete at risk for sudden death. Not everyone who has one of those conditions, thankfully, goes on to actually have a sudden cardiac arrest. But the goal is very clearly stated. And the beginnings of that evaluation started, you know, two, three decades ago. And the idea that, you know, that you could ask athletes questions about 
are you having symptoms that might be heart related, such as chest pain when you exercise? Have you passed out during exercise? Do you feel your heart race when it shouldn't? Do you feel more short of breath than you think you should for your level of exertion? Are you more fatigued than your peers um, you know, through exercise? Do you have a family history of, of heart issues or, or sudden death at a young age? You know, the, the idea that you could ask those questions and get responses that were accurate that might lead you down a road towards diagnosis, to me, was a, um, you know, important try. <laughs> it, it makes sense. I'm glad we tried. Um, the reality is that asking those questions in a screening context is not accurate and really insensitive. And so large amount of data at this point, if you fast forward a couple of decades with all of the studies that have compared history and physical with use of ECG, if all you do is history and physical, you miss about 90% of the heart conditions that put athletes at risk for sudden death. So already you're not doing a very good job if all you're doing is a history and physical. So if you believe in the objective, the objective of early detection, proper management, reduction of risks, perhaps they return to play, perhaps they don't, then we need to do something else. And so the electrocardiogram or ECG has been used for uh, a long time in some European uh, countries, specifically Italy. And, you know, Domenico Corrado and his team showed in a, a very good study published in JAMA in 2006, looking at an athlete population in the Veneto region, the northwest, excuse me, northeastern region of Italy, that over a 25-year time span in Italy, because they had mandated screening with an electrocardiogram in all of their athletes, that over a 25-year period as they got to know how to look at the ECG, how to detect the heart conditions and remove those individuals from activities that put them at higher risk, they had an 89% reduction in sudden cardiac death. And so you have actually good data that when you detect people early, you can limit sudden death, but you really only detect people early when you use tools that are more sensitive than just asking questions. Now that's different. You know, if you're a, if you're a clinician who has kids, you know, you, you guys are physios and you said, what is it, you know, what, what does a physio have to do with the heart? I'd say a lot, you guys have a lot to do with the heart, but a lot of physios have families. And they have children who play sports and they have children that have to go get a sports physical or a heart screen. And it's really important that, that you can be your child's advocate and understand what's going on. It is important to know if your kid is having symptoms, because if they're having legitimate symptoms, they do need a good evaluation. But sports physicals aren't about the kids who are having symptoms. Sports physicals are this sort of random yearly event, right? We're going to get all the, the team in before the season and see if we can detect those people at risk, regardless of whether or not you're having symptoms or not. So these history questionnaires that they have to fill out are almost useless. So we've spent a lot of time trying to make ECG more commonplace, you know, take away the, the uh, complexity of it, try to make it almost a, a binary of is the ECG normal or abnormal, creating criteria and standards and, and training modules for clinicians to understand how to look at an ECG because the sports cardiology community, as we just talked about, is relatively small and there's not enough sports cardiologists to look at all the ECGs in the athletes. We need, we need the sports and exercise medicine physicians to be doing a lot of the screening. And that's really what I believe we should be doing. And again, that's, that's part of our role, I think, as, as the 
team physician or as a sports and exercise medicine physician to do a proper heart screen. So you need to know how to look at an ECG. For a clinician who is new to managing a team, what would you suggest they include in their cardiac screening protocol? So you're talking about a, like a physician who's, who's new and taking care of a, a team. Hopefully they've had training and they're, they're familiar with some of this already. So they've obviously, this won't be the, the first sports physicals that they've done, uh, I hope. Um, you know, um, I, I still think that you ask the questions if you understand how to interpret them. So you, you, you do a, a history, a family history. You listen to their heart, physical exam. Um, you look for the physical stigmata of Marfan syndrome and, and other connective tissue disorders, and you do an ECG. And I think that is, to me, the, the modern standard for athlete heart screening is HMP plus ECG. HMP without ECG, I just don't think cuts it. And some people argue ECG alone. Maybe we should be doing that. And that is by far the most cost effective model is only to do ECG and not to ask the questions. The problem in practice in the US is that we have primary care physicians who are just doing history and physical. And the false positive response rate on those history forms is about 20%. So one in five kids checks one of those boxes with their parents that they have one of these symptoms. But I can tell you that one in five kids are not getting further evaluation. So they're checking the box, it's not clear their pediatrician or family physician is even addressing it. They're not even getting an ECG, perhaps, in practice. They're not getting referred on to a heart specialist or a sports medicine specialist. And it's not clear what's happening. So we have a, we have a false positive response rate and, and no training on that response, <laughs> like, you know, the clinician response in terms of what that evaluation should be. Uh, physical examination, you know, the idea that our stethoscope can identify pathologic heart murmurs and that as clinicians, we can differentiate a pathologic murmur from a physiologic murmur. And we, we published a study uh, last year in, in BJSM looking at about 9,000 adolescents who had had a heart screen. Um, a large subset of which had had an echocardiogram for various reasons, either a positive history response, uh, something on their physical exam, any murmur or an ECG. And what the data clearly showed is that none of us are very good at distinguishing a physiologic from a pathologic murmur. So, so we're taught in medical school that the people who need more evaluation are the ones who we think have a pathologic murmur. But if it sounds physiologic, you don't need to do more. But if you really can't tell the difference, then, then either stop doing the exam or echo everyone after if you hear a murmur. And so this just complicates the picture also now. So you have a history questionnaire that's insensitive and not very specific and just not a good tool. You have an exam that's well intended, but we're not very good at it. Or you can do an objective test like an ECG. And I just don't think there's any argument anymore, except when you don't know how to look at it. How frequently should you be doing these these ECGs for these athletes? Is it would it be better to do this all around for every athlete? I th I mean, so when do you start heart screening? If there's unlimited resources, I think you start about age twelve and you do it every two years. Once you get to the college and professional ranks, I think there's enough resources that you're probably doing it every year. And in some ways, it's easier to keep track logistically of the athletes to know that they're getting a heart screen every year and not every other year. When you're young, 
one screen is not enough. And there's actually been some recent studies that show. So if you get a, a heart screen, let's say when you're 14 or when you're 16, you can still go on to develop a heart condition later. So your screen when you're 18 or 20 or 22 might finally be abnormal. And the reason being is that some of these genetic heart conditions, like a cardiomyopathy, they have variable um, expression. And so they don't always express themselves early in adolescence. Some of them express themselves late in adolescence or even in young adulthood. And so a single screen is not enough um, for an ECG. So I think if you're doing it every two years, you probably have it covered. Would you be able to pick up these issues with an echocardiogram if it was performed earlier? No. Depends on what you're looking for. The, if you're talking about cardiomyopathy, heart muscle disease, and take a, the, the, the most common of those, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which in, in many studies is sort of the leading identified cause of sudden death in athletes, the electrical manifestations of their cardiomyopathy often show up first, and then the morphologic changes come. So you have this heart muscle that is not normal, that's sort of crisscrossed and what they call disarray in the in the myocytes and it creates an abnormal electrical signal and you can pick that up on the ECG before the heart starts to get thickened and hypertrophy, which is what you need to see with an echo or an MRI. And this is really, really important for people who do screen and have an abnormal ECG, but normal imaging. And there's been now at least two studies that have had follow-up in those types of athletes. So you have a a markedly abnormal ECG, normal imaging, and you follow that person annually with, with additional screening and, and cardiac imaging, and about 6% of them will go on to develop their cardiomyopathy later. So 6% is a reasonable number. So, so when you have an abnormal ECG, you're now in a pattern, you're, you're now you're now sort of obligated to get some serial evaluations to really make sure that you are okay um, over time. John, will you please tell us about sudden cardiac death? What is it exactly and who might be at risk? So sudden cardiac death in athletes is the leading cause of sudden death in, in sport and exercise. And it's interesting because if you think about how much publicity concussion gets and head injury or neck injury, while concussion and, and neck injury are super important, they're not a major cause of mortality, thankfully. And heart issues represent about 75% of all fatalities in sport. And so I've always taken that as a major challenge and a priority, that as a team physician, that is my job, right? I'm, I'm there to keep athletes healthy and safe doing what they love to do. And so if we can't screen well, then sort of the rest of our job may not matter as much, right? So sudden cardiac death is typically the result of an underlying heart condition. Most of the time, the athletes don't know they have it. And so most athletes who have a heart condition who later have sudden cardiac arrest don't have any symptoms prior to their arrest. So their arrest is the first manifestation of their heart disease, about 80%. And again, that brings up that limitation of that history and physical that most of them don't even have symptoms, but that's what we're asking about. The, the causes of sudden cardiac arrest in young athletes is really a, a variety of heart conditions that range from genetic heart muscle diseases, cardiomyopathies, genetic electrical problems of the heart or channelopathies, 
some acquired heart diseases like myocarditis or even premature atherosclerotic coronary disease, some, some structural heart diseases like anomalous coronary arteries or aortic aneurysms. And, and no single screening tool is perfect. And so we've talked a lot about ECG today, but ECG is not perfect either. It's just better than HMP. And so there are things that the ECG misses and specifically anomalous coronary arteries where there are two, there's a, there's a main left and a main right coronary artery that come off the aorta and they circle back to, to give the working heart muscle oxygenated blood so the heart can do what it needs to do. Sometimes those arteries originate in an, an anomalous area and because they originate in an anomalous area, they are prone to constriction or right angle turns or things that limit the blood supply, perhaps at faster heart rates and can be a risk for ischemia and leading to an arrhythmia. Our data in the U.S. shows that anomalous coronary arteries are actually the leading cause of sudden death in young adolescents like middle school. And so it's very important limitation, honestly, of, of ECG. For anomalous coronaries, some of those kids have symptoms. They have chest pain when they exercise. And the way I ask about chest pain and the, the way we write it on our questionnaire is chest pain that makes them stop. So it's not just chest pain because a lot of athletes will say their chest hurts and then they touch right and left and it's almost like tightness from just working hard. So this is chest pain usually in the center of their chest or slightly left-sided that increases with peak exertion and makes them stop. And then when they do stop, it goes away rather quickly. And, and that's sort of suspicious and concerning sounding chest pain. And if you're an adolescent with that type of chest pain, an ECG is not enough for your workup. You, you need to rule out and exclude anomalous coronary artery. So there's, there's a variety of conditions that lead to sudden cardiac death, but the common denominator for all of them is that they go into a lethal arrhythmia. And that arrhythmia originates in the ventricles, the large chambers, and is usually ventricular fibrillation or rapid ventricular tachycardia. And, and those are not sustainable. People will usually pass out and fall. Ventricular fibrillation is not generating cardiac output that will oxygenate the brain, et cetera. And it's, it is the rhythm that is found almost universally in athletes who collapse on the field uh, with sudden cardiac arrest. And who might be at risk? Are there any populations, specific age ranges, genders, or ethnicities that might have more risk than others? All of the above. You know, the, the first thing to know is that really anyone can be at risk, right? So if you look at the general population and you add up all of these different heart conditions in, in young athletes, when I say young, let's say under 30 and over 30, you really start talking about just typical atherosclerotic coronary disease. Uh, but but younger than 30, you know, the prevalence of having one of those conditions is about one in 300 people. So I'm sure most of the clinicians who are listening to this podcast have done more than 300 heart screen, you know, more than 300 sports physicals. And if they're not using ECG, my guess is they haven't found the one in 300, right? When you use ECG, I think that's when you start to get, you know, th those numbers. So anyone can be at risk, but there definitely are some athlete groups that are higher risk. And in the U.S., the data has has drawn out uh, very clear, I think, from different data sets. So it, it's somewhat validating. It seems that 
males carry a much higher risk than females, probably in the, depending on the study, six to nine times uh, the risk. In the college setting, the older athletes, it's probably about three times the risk. In the US, black athletes have a three times higher risk of sudden cardiac arrest than white athletes. There are some sport-specific differences in risk, and for some reason that we don't really understand, male basketball players carry the highest risk, at least in the US. And so if you talk about the average risk for a college athlete in the United States is about one in 50,000. But if you look at men's college basketball players, the risk is about one in 5,000. And if you look at male college basketball players who are black, the risk is about one in 2,000. And so one in 2,000 becomes really quite, you know, quite a tangible rate. And I still don't quite understand my colleagues in the U.S. who care for college men's basketball teams and don't screen them with an ECG. I suppose this isn't something that's standardized if it isn't happening in some settings. Correct. So in our professional leagues, it's standardized. So all of our professional leagues in the U.S. require ECG. So that's our American Football League, you know, the NFL, the NHL with hockey, MLB with baseball, MLS, soccer, the National Women's Soccer League, I'm pretty sure the WNBA, you know, the NBA, they all require ECG. And some require even more than that. When you get down to the college ranks, it's really per the institution. And some of that is resource dependent. So if you look at basically the biggest colleges with, let's say, the biggest sports programs that make the most money and have the most resources, probably about 75% of them are screening with ECG. So to me, that's a really good thing. But as it, as it trickles down to smaller universities, Division II, Division III universities, et cetera, heart screening within ECG is just not as common. Now go one step further and talk about the high school athlete who's just seeing their primary care physician for a good you know, wellness check or sports physical, and it's really not happening. But if anything were to happen, you're more likely to be attended to at a high school than at a club. It, yes, based on, yeah, so that, that's the management part of yeah. cardiac arrest, that if, if you have a cardiac arrest in the school setting, hopefully they have an emergency action plan that they can activate and carry out. And the survival rate is better than if you're just in like a club recreational program or, or even a elite club level without necessarily a good uh, emergency plan. But, but our adolescents are at risk. And I think we've been screening now, you know, let's say for 30 years. And I don't think we put any dent in the rate of sudden cardiac arrest. One, but what we have done is we have clearly improved the survival from sudden cardiac arrest which is terrific. And that has, that's all about emergency planning and uh, availability of, of AEDs. Can sudden cardiac death occur without any underlying pathology? Yes. And, and so can sudden cardiac death happen without identifying why it happened? And, and that can happen both in people who survive and people who die. And so let's, let's take the group that, that actually died and they go through a rigorous autopsy, cardiovascular pathologists, microscopic and histologic examination, even genetic testing, and it's all negative. And what that's called is autopsy negative, sudden unexplained death. And that actually represents a reasonable proportion of all sudden death in athletes. And, and what it represents to me is that we just don't have all the answers. 
We don't know why they all have cardiac arrest. They probably have something going on. We just don't know how to diagnose it. And we, and we missed it. And depending on the series, it represents probably 10 to 20% of all, of all cases. So an important segment for sure. You can also have someone who has a cardiac arrest and survives. Let's say they get a massive workup. You know, they get their cardiac MRI, their, their stress test, their, their monitoring, even do genetic testing. You might even screen the family and you still don't know why they had their cardiac arrest. And so you just don't always have the answers. And so, yes, you can, you can have sort of a, a negative workup or an autopsy negative case if it was a fatality. We've just surpassed two years of the COVID-19 pandemic. Initially, we knew very little, and we've learned more as time goes on and new evidence comes to light. How have COVID infections affected athletes? And what cardiac complications can we see now that have potentially arisen post-infection? Yeah, really, really good question and an important topic to, to cover right now. You know, when, when the pandemic first hit, there seemed to be a high proportion of hospitalized patients who were having cardiac injury. So they would come into the hospital for other reasons, for COVID pneumonia and other causes, but they about one third of them were having some form of cardiac injury. And it, it, it really created a lot of fear and uncertainty, I think, in the sports community. If suddenly we were going to see a high proportion of athletes with heart issues, specifically inflammation of the heart muscle or myocarditis from the virus, and if we were going to see an uptick in sudden cardiac arrest. You know, myocarditis is a well-known cause of sudden cardiac arrest well before COVID-19 pandemic ever started. Um, and it represents somewhere between four and 9% of cases in the U.S. is myocarditis. And that is, bef you know, before the, the COVID era. So well known that viral infections can lead to some heart muscle inflammation, some scar tissue, which can be a focus for an arrhythmia. But that was the fear. That was the worry. And so as COVID started, we embarked on these massive evaluations for athletes who had asymptomatic or mild infections. You know, in the U.S., it turned largely to what was called triad testing. So you'd have a, an athlete come in who had tested positive, maybe just through screening. Maybe they had no symptoms. Maybe they had very mild symptoms. Some of them had more significant symptoms. Regardless, they would go on and everyone was getting ECG, echo, and troponin, which is a blood test looking for sort of enzyme leakage of, 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 of heart injury, of, of myocardial injury. And thankfully, it, it panned out that most of that was really unnecessary, that, that the prevalence of myocarditis in that group was just very, very low. And we have not seen any uptick, um, despite some of the misinformation on social media of sudden cardiac arrest because of COVID. So that's great. And we've seen a real evolution over the last couple of years of what the post-COVID cardiac evaluation should be in athletes. So it started with sort of everyone needs a lot of testing to, well, maybe only those who have moderate symptoms need testing. And moderate symptoms were maybe 48 hours or more of fever or a cough or something a little more significant than just, oh, I had a headache and a runny nose or, um, or was asymptomatic. But even then that has evolved to, 
you know, if you don't have cardiopulmonary symptoms, you don't really need additional heart testing. So the current recommendations in the U.S. is if you've just had a COVID infection and you feel well, you don't have chest pain when you exercise, you're not having excessive, let's say, shortness of breath, not having heart palpitations, you don't really need additional heart testing. So th those athletes are no longer getting that, like another ECG or an echo or a troponin. Those, those tests just didn't really pan out. Some people early in the pandemic um, went as far as using cardiac MRI, put a lot of resources in, and we just we don't have normative data really on on athletes. And so I think there were a lot of challenging interpretations in those studies of, of seeing things and reporting things. And we just don't know what it means outside of the clinical context of someone who's presenting like they have myocarditis. Because myocarditis requires a, it's a clinical syndrome, you know, you fever, chest pain, perhaps some other symptoms, and you have these other findings, ECG changes, tr elevated troponin, something on echo or cardiac MRI. And so when someone has no symptoms and you start to see these changes, what does that, what does that mean? And it's really just as likely or more likely that what you're seeing is either normal, there before, falsely interpreted, you know, and, or completely unrelated to COVID. And so I, I am... There's a lot of lessons learned, I think, in the way we approached our fear and our anxiety about keeping athletes safe by embarking on these massive evaluations and lots of resources and some re unnecessary restriction for athletes. And I'm glad we're at a better place now that's more evidence-based. Now that there are more long-term post-infection studies being published, are there any changes in patient outcomes, whether they were asymptomatic or had a severe infection? So like like long COVID, yeah, yeah. So it's a really it, to me it's an interesting phenomenon, and I'm not sure we know the the full story yet. In our data set, using the ORCA study, outcomes registry for cardiac conditions in athletes, which is a, a U.S. based uh, study. So we had about 3,600 college athletes who had SARS-CoV-2 infection, and we've been able to follow them for over a year, and none of them had cardiac arrest related to. Um, COVID and the prevalence of symptoms that lasted long enough to call it long COVID um, was really, really low, you know, less than 1%. In, in contrast, if you look at hospitalized patients who are usually older, usually less fit, and usually with more comorbidities, the prevalence of long COVID is much higher. And now they're talking about something called COVID heart, which is a higher likelihood of having atrial fibrillation, a higher likelihood of having some congestive heart failure, you know, months after your hospitalization. And so what's the difference here? Well, they're two completely different populations, right? You have this young, healthy athlete population and you have this hospitalized population that typically has comorbidities, diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol, you know, or other or, or just age related. And so they're really different. And I, I think what we have seen through good studies is that, you know, regular exercise and f better fitness is actually protective from some of these bad outcomes with COVID. And so in general population studies, even looking at the older population with comorbidities, if you exercise more, if you had, if you met physical activity recommendations compared to the groups that didn't meet physical activity recommendations, 
you were you were less likely to be hospitalized, less likely to be in the intensive care unit, and less likely to die from COVID, which is a great thing. And so, you know, while the while the mechanism of why the why exercise is protective against sort of COVID related complications, I, I think we're still learning about that. But it seems pretty clear to me, and it sort of makes sense that maybe one of the reasons why our athletes are doing so well with COVID is because they exercise so much and they're so fit to begin with. And so they're really this low risk population. Now, low risk doesn't mean zero risk. We hear about some cases and certainly some athletes have definitely had myocarditis and things like that, but, but totally different than the group of like hospitalized middle-aged or older adults with comorbidities. That's quite interesting because even with these patients with comorbidities, according to the ESC guidelines that you co-authored, there's a lot that can be done in terms of exercising and even higher intensity exercises can be more beneficial for these patients. Yeah. Yeah. Exercise seems to be good for everyone, right? (laughs) Very rarely is there a condition that says you shouldn't exercise at least at all. And it's important for everyone to find sort of their safe physical activity level. So, so no doubt, you know, getting your physical activity, getting your exercise is, is, is helpful for you with a variety of health benefits, lower rates of cardiovascular disease, lower rates of all cause mortality, lower rates of some particular cancers, better mental health, more resilient, less prone to depression, you know, things like that. There's some studies that look at exercise and lower risk of Alzheimer's disease, you know, long-term, et cetera. So exercise is, is, is super important for, for everyone. There was another recent study that looked at the benefits of resistance training, where the results showed that the resistance training performed twice a week reduces the risk of all-cause mortality, regardless of... Independent of aerobic training. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And, and that's good to know. And, and it... There was already some data um, suggesting that, and I think since the WHO guidelines have come out, you know, at the end of 2019, uh, since they're, you know, because their new guidelines suggest that everyone should be doing some sort of resistance training a couple times a week. Now there's more robust data that has sort of separated the the, the joint associations between the aerobic part of physical activity and the, the resistance training part of exercise and there's added benefit. And, and so that's good to know. So the, you do want to mix it up in my clinical practice, we do some cardiovascular screens in, you know, sort of the aging athlete. So the middle age, or, you know, if you're 40, 50, 60, and you still want to exercise a lot and you're worried about your heart, like what does that screen look like and what do you do? And, and we use a coronary artery calcium score and standard sort of lab tests and ECG, et cetera, to put together um, our risk assessment. But one thing I always tell them is that, you know, you know, all of these people who are generally active or sort of the aging athlete, they're meeting physical activity guidelines. But there's actually some additional benefit based on fitness. So if you look at cardiorespiratory fitness, so not how much are you exercising, but how good a shape are you in? Those with higher cardiorespiratory fitness also have lower all-cause mortality. And so, you know, for the general population, you get most, and I'm going to say 80 plus percent of your health benefits by simply getting your, 
you know, moderate or vigorous physical activity of 150 minutes a week, you know, et cetera. So, so everyone can accomplish that, but then you start to get these sort of stepwise, you know, additional benefits from the resistance training, from better fitness, from maybe more activity overall. I think we all have room for improvement. I'd like to quickly circle back to the topic of ECGs. Uh, so I can ask your opinion on the use of deep learning algorithms and artificial intelligence. Do these technologies have a role in assisting with interpretation of ECGs? Yeah, absolutely. And so maybe we take that into in, at two levels, right? So the first is just understanding what the computer software is, just the interpretation program that we use already in the hospital or, or in the clinic. So every ECG device that is on the market comes with a software interpretation. If you take the one that we use in the hospital setting, let's say, and we use that interpretation system in our young athletes, it's not very good. Meaning take something common like left ventricular hypertrophy, which is just a voltage you know, just measuring the voltage on the ECG, you know, that, that's a, that can be a concerning finding in someone who's older, who doesn't exercise much and may have hypertensive heart disease or something like that. In, in well-trained young athletes, it's present in like 60% of them. <laughs> so it can't be a good marker of anything, right? It's not a good distinguisher of pathology. So if you're using the hospital-based ECG machine to screen your young athletes and you don't know how to overread it yourself, you're going to have a lot of these false positive if you're going by the machine interpretation. Contrast that to, let's say, a device where the software algorithm is very specific to athlete-specific interpretation criteria. So in the U.S., there's actually one device on the market from Cardiac Insight. It's called Cardia 2020. And it basically has taken the international criteria and put it in their software program. And so, you know, I love the Cardia device because it really acts as a second set of eyes. And it's, it is better than most community physicians and cardiologists who don't necessarily go by a standardized criteria set for interpreting an athlete's ECG. And, and the false positive rate using Cardia is really quite low. And so it can be super helpful to have a machine that's, that's programmed to give you a, an accurate interpretation in the, in the context of how you're using it. And that's really important. Maybe there's a level beyond that, right? And, and you brought up artificial intelligence and machine learning and what can that tell us? And, and we are in a very beginning stages of understanding Will that help us and how are we going to use it? I have a limited understanding of artificial intelligence and machine learning, but some of it is based on what you program in. And then some of it is based on what what the machine learns over time. And you have to have really big data sets for them to start distinguishing normal from abnormal or, or better prediction of really having a disease. Within the young athlete context, the only study population that I'm truly aware of is using machine learning to look at patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and giving a, a better prediction if they really have the disease or not. And they're starting to look at that interpretation in just the context of just young athletes who are healthy and don't necessarily have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So it makes complete sense to me that a machine should be able to interpret an ECG more accurately and more consistently than humans. 
And so I hope, and I don't know when, but I absolutely hope that at some point it is automated and validated and, and super accurate, and that would benefit everyone. But right now, you know, we have only one device on the market that I'm aware of that has an accurate interpretation. Um, we have standardized criteria that, that I hope clinicians can learn, but it does take some training and, and then some experience with it. And I think that's part of what has sort of limited the infrastructure to just make it more available. I think it was the Apple Watch that recently had a pretty substantial data set that showed some decent accuracy at detecting atrial fibrillation. So there's another wearable that is quite accessible, though not quite at the standard of a specialist physician. Yeah. And I think some of our wearables, you know, watches or, or, or other wearable devices can be accurate for the rhythm. So atrial fibrillation or palpitations, I've had some runners come in who show me their you know, they're, they're wearables and, and yeah, it looks like they have a supraventricular tachycardia or you can see the on and off point of, of their arrhythmia. It doesn't always tell you exactly what it is, but it can confirm that, yes, it looks like you're having an arrhythmia. When you do a, a 12 lead ECG in a young athlete, it's totally different. And I, I don't think the wearables at this point have any role in sort of screening the young athlete heart, but, but they certainly seem to have a detection role in picking up some of these arrhythmias in, in older athletes or older persons. Professor John Dresner, thank you so much for your time today. If listeners wanted to hear more from you or if they wanted to follow you on social media, where should they look? A couple things. If, if listeners have a question and they wanted to email me, they can email me. It's just jdresner, J-D-R-E-Z-N-E-R at uw.edu. On Twitter, it's at dresnerjohn, J-O-N. Or they could look at our website, uwsportscardiology.org. 